from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. I am a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement at Family Research Council. It's my pleasure to be with you this Friday. Tony will be back with you on Monday, so do not fret. You can always find him also on Gab, even when he's away, at Tony underscore Perkins. You can download the Stand Firm app at the App Store and on Google Play. You can also connect with FRC by texting the word STAND to 67742 to get all the FRC updates sent directly to your phone. And um, your illustrious fill-in host got in trouble because I have plugged that before without also telling you the following, that message send varies, message and data rates may apply, reply stopped to cancel, help for help, and you can visit frc.org slash text for terms and conditions and our privacy policy. Nobody likes lawyers. But there you go. You can also send text stand to 67742. We have a great show for you as we send you off into the weekend. Just today, President Biden signed an executive order creating a commission on the Supreme Court. Is he getting ready to pack it? Is he laying the groundwork? We're going to talk about that a little later with Carrie Severino from the Judicial Crisis Network. We're going to also talk to the lawyer of the church in Alberta that has since been, this week was fenced off. Members of the church are not allowed in. They had previously jailed the pastor. That wasn't enough because the church continued to gather. Now they have a fence. We're going to talk to their lawyer. That's going to be a great conversation. And then at the end of today's program, we are going to, um, what's the word? We're going to fact check some bad theology from Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock. He had some things to say on Twitter about Easter that you should know about uh, for a variety of reasons. And we're going to talk to uh, our resident theologian, David Clausen, about that at the end of the hour. But to start off the program, an exclusive report from the Daily Signal this past week revealed how the U.S. Department of Defense is promoting resources from far-left authors as part of a program to combat extremism within the ranks of the military. Among those resources are the extremist files ideologies and hate maps produced by none other than, drumroll please, the Southern Poverty Law Center. Should this come as a surprise? Not really when you consider how House and Senate Democrats have endorsed the SPLC's Year in Hate Report, which brands mainstream conservative and Christian nonprofits as hate groups and plots them on the map along with the KKK. Here's a couple of things that they had to say this week, members of Congress, about their year in hate report. Uh, the first one coming from Representative Jackie Spear from California. Let's listen to what she had to say. Congress must defeat the right wing extremism and hatred that fueled this assault on our democracy. The Southern Poverty Law Center's year in hate and extremism report gives us the context we need to act. And the assault on democracy she's referring to, the, referring to there is uh, the events of January 6th at the Capitol, which, um, if they have their way, will live in infamy forever, and we shall ne'er forget that that happened. Um, here's what Representative Ayanna Presley from Massachusetts had to say about this as well. The data in this new report will guide and inform our policymaking, and it will prove invaluable as we work to address and root out the scourge of white supremacy and hate in our nation. Because that which gets measured gets done. 
So you see there that at least some members of Congress are really excited about what the uh, SPLC has put together and the fact that they are going to, uh, quote-unquote, help the federal government root out this extremism from within its ranks. Now, you probably recall or may recall that FRC was the target of an attempted mass shooting back in 2012 because of the assailant's reliance on the SPLC's hate map. And, well, now it sounds like the Defense Department is also going to be relying on it. Joining with me to talk about all of this is U.S. Representative Vicki Hartzler, who serves as a member of the U.S. Armed Services Committee. Representative Hartzler, welcome back to Washington Watch. Well, thank you, Joseph. It's good to be here. Well, you heard some of those comments at, at the start of our conversation. I want to uh, get your take on the nature of this problem, we've, we've heard in a couple of ways, committee hearings, now this report, um, seem wanting to identify extremism within the U.S. government, within the military. How big of a problem is this? Well, I don't think it's near the big the problem as they try to make it out. They're just trying to use this data basically to silence Christians and those that adhere to a biblical worldview. If you look at what happened on January 6th, out of the thousands of, of people that were there that day, they've arrested between three and 400. But of those, only 37 uh, had any connection to the military, either active duty or veterans. And yet they go out and are saying that the large preponderance of the attackers were in our military. So we have to adjust extremism. They, and that is a small, small uh, percentage at best of the over 1,000 people there, and they just want to clamp down on biblical worldviews and to try to advance their narrative, and it's very, very concerning. You know, uh, the Secretary of Defense, uh, General Austin, ordered a stand-down all across our military uh, where every men and women in uniform had to participate in a training to supposedly address this, and they don't have adequate definitions for what extremism entails and, uh, you know, leaving open the possibility that just because you adhere to religious beliefs um, or have faith and belief to the biblical worldview, that you could be defined as an extremist and uh, punished or kicked out of the military or say, we don't want you. And yet it is people of faith that have stood up for years in our nation and have been willing to put on the uniform and fight for freedom. And if we don't welcome them, uh, heaven help our country. Well, I think there's a lot of data to suggest from voting patterns to religious affiliation that members of the military skew conservative, skew right compared to the general public. And and is this how is this playing this new emphasis within the military? How how is to of rooting out extremism? How is that sitting with members? of the military who may see this as uh, efforts by the administration to target their beliefs? Well, it isn't sitting well. And I have heard from service members as well as their families that they feel like they're being targeted because of their belief and they're being forced to um, act and believe and speak a certain way. And they, they don't feel welcome. And this is very concerning because if they leave the military, they choose not to reenlist because they don't feel welcome or they don't want to enlist to begin with then we're going to be left with a, a real problem. Uh, we have an all-volunteer uh, military, and like I said, and you have said, those with those traditional values are the ones that are willing to lay down their life for their fellow man, um, willing to give that service, that sacrifice. We need them 
uh, going into the military, and we should not be, you know, shoving them away or trying to re-educate them in the uh, uh, in the pattern of the liberals in this country. Well, I think you're exactly right about that. This is this is not a way to generate goodwill um, amongst those who have already volunteered uh, to serve their country in this way by in any way communicating to them that their belief systems are somehow disfavored or um, problematic from the view of the administration. Now, we would all agree on some level that we don't want, you know, quote unquote extremism. And the problem is that we, we have a hard time defining sure. what that is, and it's not clearly defined. Now... Department of Homeland Security tracks those things as well, probably in a better way than the SPLC does. Yet, there's this insistence that we want to partner with, we want to get advice from SPLC. Why is that when there are other entities that are much less problematic that could provide helpful information? Because I don't believe that some of the Democrats want a unbiased opinion. They want to have some organization that they try to uphold as a champion for really determining who is extreme or not that adheres to their beliefs because they don't like that there are people that have religious beliefs according to the bible on sexuality and on other issues and it bothers them and they want to silence them and so they they uh reach out to sblc and try to uphold them in fact i was part of an armed services hearing recently on extremism and they had a witness there from the SPLC, and we were we asked questions about, you know, their view of extremism. What does that mean when you have organizations like the Family Research Council, uh, like other pro-family organizations that uh, they have listed in past or currently on the hate maps? And they said, well, it is if it's not based on religion. They tried to tell us it is just repeated patterns of discrimination. They kept saying against uh, certain groups like LGBTQ. Well, they didn't define what is discrimination. So basically, if you just adhere to a viewpoint that uh, marriage should be between man and a woman, then they're going to label that as discriminatory, and they're going to you know, say that you're an extremist and a hate group. And that is just wrong. That is not what many Americans believe. And they shouldn't be uh, upheld by the Department of Defense as an expert and used as a basis for their policies and how they conduct the military. And it's very concerning because I am focused on the readiness of our troops, be able to meet any threat, whether it be China or Russia or Iran. And there was a report this week uh, from the the Government Accountability Office that said our uh, defense is not ready, uh, that the the levels have gone down. Mm -hmm. And so we should be focusing on that, not on being, you know, trying to force our soldiers to be politically correct. I think that's exactly the point that most Americans would agree with. The purpose of the military is not to not to conduct social experiments, and we're seeing that with, with the transgender issue and this insistence that we're going to pay for that for soldiers who are dealing with that unique struggle. And here we're seeing the military being used for this whole kind of different social, re-engineer, social engineering purpose that's really just kind of political smears and has nothing to do with can we defend ourselves, can we defend freedom at home and around the, the nation. Now, you uh, you and Representative Doug Lamborn wrote a letter um, within the last month asking the Navy to pull books that were promoting identity politics and wokeness from its official reading list. Can you? I think that's connected to this conversation. What, what exactly was your concern there, and what was the result of that? Mm-hmm. Well, this is more of concern about the indoctrination 
of the Department of Defense, of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and guardians, um, such that, of course, they just had to stand down. They had to go through this extremism training. But now when you have the, the chief of naval operations, uh, Admiral Michael Gildy, come out with a professional reading list, which is viewed as uh, upheld as this is good reading, this is what we support, this is what you should uh, uh, consider as you, as a uh, member of the Navy, uh, re-educate yourself or, or professional development. And they had three books on it I we felt like were very um, inappropriate. One is called How to Be an Anti-Racist. The other is The New Jim Crow Law and then Sexual Minorities in Politics. And under How to Be an Anti-Racist, uh, it, it says that the American system is basically corrupted top to bottom by racial prejudices, which account for all differences and outcomes in our society. And that we should, you know, as a Navy, they're saying should fight the system rather than our enemies overseas. And this is ridiculous. It's part of this critical theory, and uh, it has no place in our, our, our armed services. Now, we would definitely agree with you, and it is certainly our hope and our prayer that this will be a short-lived experiment within the, uh, within the armed services, but it's yet more evidence of the fact that elections do matter. Representative Vicki Hartzler, thank you so much for your service uh, to our country and for joining us today. Appreciate it very much. You bet. Thank you, Joseph. Have a great day. Bye. And, and folks, let this be a warning to you and, and what we're dealing with here. Partisan litmus test for military service is bad. And that is what is attempting to be set up. We need to know about it. We need to make sure that does not become the new normal. Coming up, President Biden called the idea of court packing a boneheaded idea back in 1983. But he just took the first step in that direction. We'll talk about it after the break. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I, I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In our time, North Korea remains one of the world's most mysterious countries. Unfortunately, what we do know about North Korea indicates the country is also one of the world's worst abusers of human rights, including violations of religious freedom. The North Korean regime has engaged in an intense crackdown on religion for decades. Today, few religious believers remain, and those who do face grave danger. The secretive nature of the regime, nicknamed the Hermit Kingdom, makes it difficult for American leaders to address these human rights issues. Yet, even though options are limited, the gravity of the situation calls on Western countries to take every action possible to relieve the suffering of the North Korean people, a people who have no chance of speaking up for themselves. To learn more about this important issue, check out FRC's publication titled North Korea, the World's Foremost Violator of Religious Freedom. To access the information you need to stay informed, including a list of policy proposals, go to frc.org 
slash North Korea. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph back home city in for Tony today. One of the developments of this week, and I don't know if he did it on Friday, because Friday tends to be the day that uh, you release things uh, that you don't want people to talk about. But Democrats in Washington, D.C., of course, are doing everything in their power to acquire more power. They're not only looking to take away the state's ability to run their own elections through H.R. 1 and S.R. 1, which are known affectionately as the Corrupt Politicians Act, but they are looking to take over the Supreme Court by expanding its size. Today, the president took the first step toward doing that. President Biden issued an executive order to establish the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States. That's the official title. And this is going to look into, quote, the merits and legality of particular reform proposals for the court including the court's role, the court's length of service, and the size of the court. Now, we are expecting Carrie Severino from the Judicial Crisis Network to be joining us momentarily. We're still trying to get her. But to set up this conversation, the, the things that this is going to look at, they're gonna, this commission that President Biden is creating is going to look at the court's role the justice's length of service and the size of the court. And they have compiled, I think the number um, is not more than 36 members of this commission. So uh, it sounds like that's flexible. He actually, in the statement today, released a number of commissioners. I didn't actually count the number of them, but there is more than a dozen for sure. It is co-chaired um, by Bob Bauer, who is a professor of practice and distinguished scholar in residence at New York University School of Law. Um, I don't actually know Mr. Bauer, but the fact that he teaches at NYU Law School is probably not a great, uh, not a great sign, generally, how that works. Um, and the other co-chair is Yale Law School professor Christina Rodriguez. Again, I don't know Professor Rodriguez, but the fact that she teaches at Yale Law School um, kind of worries me just generally because of who they're producing. But again, I should give them the benefit of the doubt and let them um, prove themselves one way or another. But the nature of this commission, where this is coming from, of course, uh, because we all know that the Trump administration, um, one of the great the great accomplishments from many people's perspective and certainly mine, and and was the Supreme Court. And in fact, that was in my opinion, the reason President Trump was elected was because of the promises that he made on the Supreme Court. 
and what he was going to do. And it looks like we now have Kerry Severino from the Judicial Crisis Network with us to talk to us about this this um, executive order from uh, President Biden today. Kerry, do we have you? Uh, we've got me. We've got you. Wonderful. Welcome to Washington Watch. And so about this executive order, did you know that this was coming? Were you expecting this? Yeah, well, the President Biden has, even before the election, been, been forecasted that he wants to start this commission. Remember, he refused to tell Americans what he would do in terms of court packing. So in one way, this is him kind of trying to kick the can down the road and provide cover. But what we're really seeing here, if you look at the trajectory, he has for decades been acknowledging court packing is, as he said in his own words, a boneheaded idea. And it's, you know, no surprise he thinks so, because everyone from Bernie Sanders to Ruth Bader Ginsburg to now Justice Breyer, another liberal in the Supreme Court, says it's a horrible idea. But what we had is over $100 million spent by these really radical dark money groups to get him in office. He's trying to find a way to tack to the left here and cover his, his tracks, not showing how radical he's become. He wants an excuse to go all the way to this court packing. And I think his commission is trying to provide himself a fig leaf to go from the moderate man he tried to prevent during his, his uh, the election to the extreme radical, full-throated left just scrap this whole thing and, and start over. So do you think the answers to the questions are predetermined, or are they going to make a good-faith attempt to answer questions objectively? Well, let me explain what this commission is. This is three dozen people on the commission, right? And looking at it, I can see about a handful who are even Republicans. So he likes to talk about this is a bipartisan commission. We're talking about three dozen members of the commission. you got a handful of moderate Republicans thrown on there for, you know, window dressing, it's it's no question in my mind what this commission is going to have. you got people like Lawrence Tribe, who since the 80s, he's the guy who invented the idea of borking Robert Bork. He's on the commission. Caroline Fredrickson has worked for everyone from the ACLU to, to NARAL Pro-Choice America to the American Constitution Society. These are straight out of liberal activist, you know, fun, fundamentalists yeah. on the left here. There's no question what this what the, the commission is going to do uh, i think it's really just his way to try to uh, have an excuse to say oh well these wonderful scholars are telling you to do this no we know who's telling you to do it it's the dark money groups on the left who funded your campaign who said we will settle for nothing less than the most extreme judges possible and we won't even take nine of them we want 15 we want as many on the court as we can get this will be the uh, the legal version of follow the science, which of course means follow the sciences yeah. that I agree with, right? And so exactly. th- these are exactly. a, a new panel of quote unquote experts, which uh, which will which will decree truth, of course, and then President Biden will have no choice but to do what the experts tell him to do. What is the timeline on this commission uh, for their results? Well, they're supposed to come up with some results in 180 days. So I think they're hoping we all get distracted and forget what's going on here in the meantime. Uh, but but believe me, they know that before they potentially lose control of the Senate, there is going to be a huge push and a movement because you're already getting people talking about eliminating the filibuster. And that's one of the big agendas. They know they don't have 60 votes to pack the court, but they're hoping they can get 50. Yeah, well, but to make sure people understand the dominoes, this realistically can't happen without the filibuster being removed. Is that correct? That, that's right. Yeah, you're not going to. They have to do that first, and then and then this is a, a top target. I think they have to get it down so they can have 50 votes, and then have Vice President Harris as the tiebreaker, 
and then at no hold barred. And then it's really just any liberal wish list can get done at that point. What do you see happening with all of this? What's your prediction? So I, I see the commission comes back and gives a result that gives the president, he'll just say, oh, look, a bipartisan group, again, a heavily dramatically tilted bipartisan group says, let's move ahead with this. And he'll, he'll play moderate while doing the most aggressive thing to the left of Bernie Sanders, to the left of Ginsburg, that he can come up with, packing the court. And that would, that would radicalize the court beyond what anything I can imagine. Um, and that, that would be a real problem for a country where you want the court to be a check on the con- making sure the Constitution is followed. That's right. Carrie Severino, Judicial Crisis Network, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it very much. Speaking of abuse of power, we're going to go to Canada and we're going to talk to the lawyer of a church that has just been shut down by the government after the break. The history of religious persecution in China is extensive, and many are not aware of the current oppression of religious groups taking place there. China restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale. This religious persecution targets those of every faith. Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong practitioners are all victims of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to suppress any set beliefs that might compete with the party's ideology. This campaign against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. Family Research Council's recently updated publication addresses China's consistent abuses of human rights and explains why they cannot be treated like any other country. Learn more about this issue by visiting frc.org slash China. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, i definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Macholm sitting in for Tony today. Last Friday on the program, we highlighted how more and more churches are seeing their state and local governments lift limits and restrictions on their gatherings, either as a result of litigation or because of improving COVID trends. What we haven't seen, however, is what happened to one church in Canada, which was actually shut down this week by local health officials. It wasn't just shut down. They've actually put up a large fence around the church to keep the congregation out. What led to it? Well, with me now to talk about it is Jay Cameron, the litigation director at the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, which is representing Grace Life Church in Edmonton. Jay, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks so much for having me. 
Well, we want to know the story because this is, to a lot of us, shocking. What prompted this latest development that actually has a local government putting a fence around the church to make sure nobody's going in? There's no way to mince words here about it. There's no point. This is an aggressive escalation by government tyrants in Alberta, namely the public health officials and Premier Kenny, uh, who have increasingly targeted anybody who defies these draconian public health orders. The government has refused to scientifically justify those orders to the legislature and to the public, but they fearmonger constantly about cases. And, and now, because this church has remained open uh, in defiance of some of these measures, um, you have the, the argument, which is always the argument of last resort to tyrants, and that is force. And so they have come in with the police, they've changed the locks in the church, and they've erected a double barrier fence around the, uh, around the church so that nobody can go there. What is their justifi- What are they claiming that they are doing? What's the legal justification that the, the authorities are giving for this? Well, you have public health orders in Alberta and in various other provinces which are unilaterally issued by one uh, physician. And so in Alberta, that's Dr. Dina Hinshaw. Dr. Hinshaw has, to my knowledge, never practiced medicine clinically, but she is, has enormous power in the province of Alberta to issue these orders. And the law says, basically, that she can do whatever she thinks is necessary uh, to prevent the spread of a virus. And, and so you have no separation of powers in the person of Dr. Hinshaw. She is both legislature and she is the person who is carrying out her, her orders using her staff and her access to the police. And so whatever she says, that's the law. And so if she says, you know, you can't have church services or you have to meet outside or this week we're doing 10% capacity and, um, you know, and, and that's the law, then that becomes the law. And then there are, you know, enormous fines for disobeying her. And so that is the basis uh, for, for, the, uh, for the measures that have been taken against Grace Life Church. Uh, it, it seems incredible to hear you tell that story. What is the, what's the response from the church legally and otherwise at this point? Well, the church has been charged, um, and the pastor spent over a month in jail uh, because he was holding church services. And, uh, you know, the police come to the church, and they harass the people holding church, and, they, you know, they film the parishioners. And uh, ultimately speaking, they arrested the pastor, and he was held ostensibly because he had breached an undertaking not to hold church services, but he never agreed not to hold church services, and eventually he was released. But not until after, like I said, not until after he had spent all this time in, in jail. And so, you know, I mean, it's the, the church uh, says, well, here's the constitutional rights that are set out in Canada. We have a fundamental right of freedom of conscience and religion and peaceful assembly. Those rights and freedoms are supposed to be fundamental. They come out of the tradition in the United States primarily of inalienable rights. These rights come from God. That's what the church believes. And they are, you know, they are not prepared. They're not going to stop holding services because of a virus that 99.7% of people survive. And most of the people who get it don't even know they have it. 
you make a point that is, that is so obvious to me. It, it's it's strange that we are <laughs> that, that we're at this point. You know, I you may have seen the video of another Canadian pastor uh, named Arthur Palowski from I think he's from Calgary, who um, got some notoriety online because he evicted some health authorities who had invaded a Passover service at his church. I don't know if you've seen that, but what is the uh, to me, it was in, it was inspiring because he just said, "Go away, go away, go away," and eventually they went away. At what point? Um, what's the posture? I know you're a lawyer and, and you have to give legal advice, and but what should people be doing in the face of this kind of uh, tyranny? I know Mr. Polowski. In fact, when I was a young lawyer, uh, our office used to act for him uh, because he was street preaching in the Calgary area. But um, you know. The, the answer to all tyrants, and again, I, there's, there's, there's no point in mincing words at this point in time with where things are in Canada. The answer to all tyrants is to stand up to them. And uh, if you don't do that, you will be steamrolled. And, right. and, you know, people and society generally are a long ways from the idea of give me liberty or give me death, which was Patrick Henry's uh, famous, mm-hmm. famous slogan. Uh, in the United States. Now it's give me peace and give me security. Whatever it is, right? Give me the welfare state. Give me the control of the government. Give me, you know, peace and safety. And uh, and that that's all I want. Yep. Well, Jay Cameron, we are out of time. You can hear the music there. Um, we are going to continue to check in on this story because it's alarming. It's concerning. We will be in prayer for you and the church. And thank you for standing up and, and giving them courage. Appreciate your time as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Coming up, we will be doing some theological fact-checking of Raphael Warnock after the break with David Clausen. Stay with us. trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday on over 800 radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Vicki Hartzler, Molly Hemingway, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Dana Lash, Sissy Graham Lynch, Pastor John MacArthur, Eric Metaxas, Albert Moeller, and more. Tony is joined by leading political figures, pastors, and policy and culture experts who will inspire you to be engaged and informed on the important issues facing America. For a Christian perspective on the news of the day, tune in to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Ever since the Supreme Court handed down its infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 that legalized abortion nationwide, a national debate has raged over whether the government should fund abortion. In 1976, Congress banned taxpayer funding of abortion and Medicaid by passing the Hyde Amendment. Several states have followed suit, passing their own restrictions on abortion funding. However, Because government funding is a complex system of joint federal and state programs, 
Completely banning taxpayer funding for abortions and abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood is challenging. There is still much work to be done to free the American taxpayer from funding the horrific practice of abortion. Family Research Council's new publication clearly explains the Hyde Amendment and why we need to keep it in order to save taxpayers from being forced to fund abortion. Access this important information by visiting frc.org slash Hyde. What's on your daily or weekly reading list? Are you looking for honest and informative commentary from fellow believers on the current issues facing our culture? Family Research Council has just the thing. Check out FRC's blog at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts as well as outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Read up on some of our latest titles like Four Disturbing Trends in Religious Freedom Worldwide, Legitimizing Looting Jeopardizes Liberty for All, The Media Still Doesn't Get It, Conservatives Tend to Vote Conservative, and more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you live out your faith and to stand for truth. Our blog is here to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. Back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony, who will be with you, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, no doubt, on Monday. But as we send you into your weekend, uh, to close out the week, uh, we I've enjoyed the end of Friday programs, my weekly conversation, which has turned into with David Clausen, who's the Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council. Today's topic, though was prompted by a since-deleted tweet by Senator Raphael Warnock of Georgia, who pushed this out to his followers on Easter Sunday. And I'll read this tweet to you. He said, quote, The meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether you are Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. End quote. That was his tweet. And David... Clausen is here to talk about it. David, welcome back to the program. It's great to be with you again, Joseph. Thanks for having me. Well, Senator Warnock, when he ran uh, last year, he made a lot of people kind of scratch their heads and about the idea that he was campaigning as a pro-choice pastor. And those things seem like oxymorons to many of us. In light of this Easter tweet, does this provide some clarity to who he is and kind of where he's coming from theologically? Well, I think it absolutely uh, does, Joseph, because if you, if, you, if you look a little bit at Raphael Warnock's uh, past, so obviously he's the pastor of a well-known church in Atlanta that was previously pastored by uh, the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr., uh, but the Reverend Warnock, uh, for his seminary education, he went to Union Theological Seminary in New York City, uh, actually got three degrees from school. this school, uh, one of the most theologically liberal denominations uh, actually in the world, this seminary. They admit students who identify as pagan and uh, really don't hold to any really tenet of biblical Christianity. So even when he was running as a, a pro-choice pastor, uh, his theological liberalism uh, was beginning to show and now with this Easter tweet, uh, Joseph, this is textbook 
theological liberalism. Uh, that that's what's on display. Uh, that denies the the resurrection, or it, it takes the power out of the resurrection and gets the gospel right. wrong. Yeah, I, I think that's an important point, and we're going to dig into some of that. And I, I want to let people know that this conversation, David uh, wrote a blog about this subject called Thinking Biblically About the Resurrection and the Social Gospel, and you can find that at frcblog.com, frc.org slash blog is where that is. So um, you can find that, um, and I commend it to you, but tell us, David, this idea, what are we to think of about his suggestion that there are some things more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus? Is that true? Well, it's not, uh, Joseph. Let, let's, uh, it's not, period. Uh, the Reverend Roranock is uh, wrong. Uh, and what he said is he said the meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurre- resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what he's saying there is that Easter Sunday, which we just celebrated last weekend, uh, there's something more superior, something more important, something more preeminent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Joseph, that's what Easter right. is all about, uh, which is at the core of the Christian gospel. It, yeah, and I, and I dare say uh, Easter is what Christianity is all about, because without the resurrection, without the, the, the death uh, and payment for our sins and the resurrection and overcoming death, there is no Christianity, right? And, and Paul made that point that uh, without, w- without the resurrection, then our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain, if Christ no- has not been raised. So the idea that there is something more transcendent about Easter than the resurrection suggests that there's more things more transcendent about Christianity than Christ, which is seems not really even Christian, is it? No, and that's what he's implying. You just quoted uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen fourteen. If you go five verses later in verse 19, uh, Paul writes, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not at the core of our faith, then what Paul's saying is those of us who follow Jesus, the world should feel sorry for us uh, because if Jesus isn't resurrected, you know, Joseph, you and I, we're still in our sins. Uh, we're not reconciled to God. Uh, we still owe a debt to God. We still have to bear that wrath. And, and moreover, if Jesus isn't resurrected, uh, Jesus himself is a liar. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples he was going before them to prepare a place before them. So, again, the the Christian faith uh, is centered around the gospel, which is the message that sinful people can be reconciled to a holy God. How are we reconciled to a holy God? By repenting of our sins and turning in faith to Jesus Christ. How can Jesus save us? Well, it's through his death, his resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of God. And so, again, if you are minimizing the importance of the resurrection of Jesus you really don't understand the, the, the message of the gospel, which is, again, how you and I are made right with a holy God. Yeah, and I think that is, it's an important, just as a, just as a logical matter, it, it, the thing, one of the things that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion is that Muhammad, Buddha, Joseph Smith, Gandhi, whatever guru you think about, none of them, all of them died and stayed dead. They didn't claim to have raised from the dead. So the the claim of a resurrection is indeed fantastic. And it, it, yes, on one level, it's difficult to comprehend to, to, the, to the human mind, right? Because people don't, when they die, they stay dead. They don't come back from the dead. But it, it is what distinguishes Christianity from everything else, the idea that, that our God is not dead. Our prophet is not dead. And of course, Jesus is more than a prophet. Um, he, is, he is the Savior. But... 
without that, without the resurrection, Christianity is just another kind of self-help formula. It's another um, way of getting religious instructions, of ethical, moral teachings about how to be a good person, how to give a, live a good life and have a good family. And there's lots of advice on that. But the, Christianity includes advice on how to have a good life, but it has so much more than that, and fundamentally it is so much more than that. So um, it, it's an interesting debate about did the resurrection happen or not. But from a Christian perspective, if you claim to be a Christian, which means you believe the resurrection happened, there's nothing more transcendent than the resurrection because it is, in fact, what, distinct, what makes Christianity not simply a belief system but a, but a reality that speaks to all of creation because otherwise Jesus isn't God. No, that, that's absolutely well said. And, again, that's why the, the, you know, we're, we're still on sentence number one of the two-sentence tweet. Uh, but we're again, we're, we're rev- right. the Reverend Senator Raphael Warnock is saying that there's something more superior than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's flat out wrong, and as a minister of the gospel, he should know better. And uh, th- well, that, he deleted that, that, it, so maybe he does. I don't know. I, I hope he does. I hope he <laughs> repents of that and that he doesn't teach that from his pulpit. Yeah, well, that, that, that's a good point. But let's let's get into um, kind of the, the the second half of this tweet a little bit. What he suggested was more transcendent than the resurrection, which is the idea that through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. What do you think he's saying there? I think what he's saying right there, Joseph, is textbook theological liberalism. So about 100 years ago at the turn of the the previous century, you had mainline Protestant denominations kind of get embarrassed with the extraordinary things of the Christian faith. So they decided they wanted to get rid of the virgin birth of Christ. Uh, They didn't believe in the inspiration and authority of the Bible. They certainly didn't believe in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. And they got rid of miracles, including the resurrection. And what did they replace it with? Well, they replaced it with a social gospel, Uh, this this idea that through good works, through, through charity, through serving one another, uh, that's a way that we can kind of uh, bring God's kingdom here on earth. Um, so this kind of, again, you saw the rise of the social gospel about 100 years ago, and that's just continued in these mainline Protestant denominations. And so I think that's exactly what you're seeing reflected in this uh, second part of the Reverend's tweet, is this idea that, one of, uh, that we can save ourselves. And, and Joseph, every verse in the New Testament uh, speaks against that. Right. You mentioned that you had you watched his sermon from Easter. Is that correct? Did I? I did listen to part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And and what what else did you pull from him theologically? Was it was it consistent with this? Was his tweet an outlier, or was that really a reflection of kind of who he is theologically? Yeah. To, to be fair to the Reverend, I did, did not listen to the whole sermon, but I did listen to part of it and. Uh, the parts I heard, uh, Joseph, were what you would expect uh, from a from a pastor in a church that's part of a, a mainline Protestant denomination. Uh, you heard a lot of self-help. Uh, you heard a lot of you know reading of scripture and then jumping to talking about political issues or cultural issues, mm-hmm. um, as if that there was a "Thus saith the Lord" on the issue of voting rights, uh, which is something he explicitly brought up in his sermon. And so, again, for an Easter sermon where we should be putting all the light on Jesus, all the light on the resurrection, uh, at least the parts I heard, I I think, unfortunately, he did miss the mark. Well, he is a he's theologically and I've heard him 
talk in other formats about liberation theology, and I think he's comfortable with that term uh, being applied to him, that he's a liberation liberationist theologian or whatever the term is there, however you phrase that. Um, what is that, and how does that relate to kind of what he said on Easter? Yeah, so the whole idea of liberation theology really uh, came to prominence in the late 1960s, 1970s, especially in South America. Uh, but it began seeing the whole world. It's really a worldview. It's a way of seeing the world through the lens of the oppressed versus the oppressor. And so it identifies problems uh, in the world, not necessarily primarily as personal sin, but through oppressive structures and systems. And so the solution actually isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ. The solution in, uh, in liberation theology is uh, political revolution. If we throw off the those who are oppressing us, uh, therefore we can find kind of a, a salvation in that that way. So that that's a little simplified, Joseph. But kind of the, the thrust behind liberation theology, it, it points to political revolution and throwing off those who are oppress oppressors, uh, which are usually those who have power. And, and I think one of the other things that liberation theology does, and, and the way it's distinct from orthodox Christianity is its identification of what the biggest problem is. Because in Scripture, we see that the, the biggest problem on earth is sin, which starts in Genesis 3, our, our assertion that God is wrong about what he said in Genesis 1 and 2. And, and um, so and when sin entered the world and sin entered us and through Adam entered the world and through Adam entered the rest of us, right? And so Scripture tells us that the human heart and our sin nature is the biggest problem that humanity, that the earth, that the creation, that the universe deals with. Liberation theology identifies a different problem. And it's very similar, uh, I think, in this respect to what we're hearing more and more about critical race theory, which is they seem to be a subset of each other, and we're not going to have the time to really dissect how they, how they work together. But similarly, identify the primary problem as injustice and structural and societal injustice and therefore the solution to the problem is fixing those injustices and that that's the primary goal of our faith of our religion and christianity would say the primary goal of our of our faith is to uh, deal with our sin problem and restore us to right relationship with god and liberation theology would say um that the biggest that what we need to do primarily is solve structural institutional injustices. Do you think that's a fair characterization of what liberation theology does? I do, Joseph. I think that's that's well said, and I think that's what's behind that. All of what we just talked about, this theology of liberation theology and critical race theory. I think that when you see a, a sentence such as um, that, we can be we can save ourselves through helping others. That's the kind of language you come up with when that's the theology right. that you're operating from. And, and Joseph, I just want this is really important for our listeners to, to hear this. You know, again, this is the, this is a not explaining the gospel the way the Bible does. And so, how are we saved? This is you know, you and I have just been discussing that we believe Reverend Warnock has it wrong. Well, Paul makes it really clear in Romans ten nine that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
So salvation is nothing that we do. Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. Salvation is not about good works. Now, you and I as believers, once we've been saved, we're going to do good works. We want to uh, love other people. But primarily, the way we're made right with God is not through throwing off the oppressors or, or doing good works. It's that we repent of our sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. That's the core of Christianity. And we cannot afford to get that wrong. Because if we get that wrong, we don't understand God. We don't understand Jesus. We don't understand uh, God's word. And we're, we're just misinterpreting scripture. So we, we have to get the main thing right. Yeah. And I think this does explain in many ways the, the political differences that, are, that have theological kind of associations as well. Is the biggest problem in your life inside of you or is it outside of you? And that, to me, sums up this, this theological difference, where many on the, on the political and theological left would say the biggest problems that we face with are structural, they're cultural, they're political, they're institutional, they're around us. And I think the, uh, on, on the, the more conservative perspective side, you would say the biggest problems of, uh, uh, in the world are inside of us. And if we fix the inside of every human heart... Then the structures and societal institutions, they kind of fix themselves because uh, the human heart has been fixed. Now, uh, of course, we're not opposed to the second part of this. We're not opposed to helping each other, are we? We, we do have a commitment to, to helping each other, but that's just not how we save ourselves, is it? No, we do good works because we're, we do it out of gratefulness for the salvation we receive through Christ. And all that's there in Ephesians 2, 7 through 10. Now, David, uh, we do have just, this is probably the last question for you, but what should somebody say? Uh, what do we do if we encounter this liberation theology? How should, a, how should a Christian respond to those arguments? We just need to go back to God's word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Let's just go back to God's word, and that's where we'll find the truth. That's where we'll find the message that saves us. David Clausen, thank you so much for your wisdom and your time again. We look forward to doing it again next week. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joseph. And for the rest of you, we hope that this has blessed and encouraged you, that we hope that you uh, have more confidence in the reality of who God is and what his purpose is for your life. Go ahead and have a great, great weekend. We'll see you on Monday. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's one 372 7234.